Hi, this is Alan Shartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Carlos E. Slutsky, M.D., Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University School of Medicine, Professor Emeritus of Global and Community Health and Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University, and author of The Presence of the Absent, Therapy with Families and Their Ghosts, and that's available at Amazon.com. Welcome, Dr. Slutsky. Thank you so much, Alan. So, uh, let's all get to know you. Where were you born? I was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where I did all my training and as a psychiatrist and as a psychoanalyst and as a family therapist in part. So, how does it matter where geographically in psychiatry you were born and raised? In other words, is a New York psychiatrist different from a Argentinian psychiatrist, both of who had analytic training? Well, there is a difference in the background culture and in the overall approach to interpersonal relations. In addition to the fact that in Argentina, the main psychoanalytic influence was British, not American. So there are two different orientations within, the, within psychoanalysis. Yes, but both of them, the Brits and the Americans, relied heavily on Freud, did they not? They do, but there are enough variations in the whole frame to be able to have different attitudes and different premises. But in addition to that, the uh, reality in Latin America, or in particular in Argentina, impinges upon the daily life in a much more powerful and direct way through politics and through uh, political upheavals and through exiles and through different tyrannies, which doesn't take place here. So it's perhaps the context is more central. I'm not sure I get that. When you say more central, what do you mean? More central in as a variable to consider each conflict, each situation that doesn't take place, let's say, in the theater of the mind of people alone, but in conversation, in the way reality is described and in the way reality acts on people. So you're an analyst. Look, there are a lot of mental health professionals around now. We have social workers who we often consider to be sure. more directive. We have analysts who don't have to have a medical degree. Most do, like Freud. We have um, psychologists who treat people. If somebody is troubled, where should they go? Well, first of all, when I said I was talking about my trainings, if you would ask me, what are you? Are you a psychoanalyst? I would say, no, I'm a social psychiatrist. I'm a family-oriented, narrative-focused operator. And so what is a social psychiatrist? A person that, in considering all the different malaise and conflicts and difficulties that people have, keeps in mind all the time and keeps in focus all the time the context and the culture, so much more openly, let's say. So let's talk about the rigor of all of this. Uh, you know, Woody Allen once famously said, he got so much out of analysis, he'd like to go every day for the rest of his life. At least that's what we hear, he said. Whether or not he said it is another whole story. Mm -hmm. Okay. So somebody comes to you, Dr. Slutsky, and they say, uh, my wife gets very angry at me because I keep doing the same thing. And as the old joke goes in medicine, so stop itching. Do you ever just say, cut it out? No, I would say, bring your wife and let's talk to the two of you with me. And... Uh, uh, figure out in what ways there, there are relational issues that will uh, stuck a person in a given, what appears to be a given repetitive behavior or conflictive behavior, which generally is the product of rules of the relation in context also. And the context may be 
that each of the two members of the couple may come from different backgrounds or have passed through different evolutionary moments in the person, the personal needs and personal uh, realizations. And so there are possibly issues in the family of origin of one and of the other that generate different expectations. So, so you're talking about one's Jewish and one's Catholic? Could well, that be one of the examples? Well, that, that could be. One, one is Jewish and in Jewish, in being Jewish, has some uh, style of being, for instance, much more mindful, as generally frequently Jewish are, and less dependent on certain kind of uh, external rules or rules of the creed if the Catholic is an active Catholic. And so those are things that in some cases are openly negotiated, that is talked to and dealt with, but quite frequently, no, they are just left aside, not even touched by the couple, and they launch into a relationship, and they find themselves caught in those traps. Well, that's so interesting, because the name of your book, and I think you've just sort of hit on it, mm. is The Presence of the Absence, Therapy with Families and Their Ghosts. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> well, it's a clinical book, meaning that a book of mainly a collection of different cases, so to speak, or treatments, short treatments and long treatments, depending which, that have one component in common, as in fact is quite frequent in, in our lives and in our relational lives, that is the presence of some person that died or that disappeared or that one way or another physically are not there, but that their influence are, is such that they acquire certain material reality in their interpersonal processes. If you want, I can tell you two or three or yeah, several of those situations. <laughs> there are some that are heavily political. For instance, I was talking about Argentina. As you know, in Argentina in the 70s, there was a military junta that led to a ferocious repression that produce about 30,000 people who were disappeared, quote-unquote, meaning by that, swallowed by the militaries into torture centers and then... Or thrown out of uh, helicopters. They're thrown out of airplanes into the Atlantic Oceans or buried in unmarked graves, collective graves, things like that. And also there were enormous number of people who were exiled, who left the country because of that. Well, this regime, in addition to disappearing, pressure people so as not to speak about that. That is, they would come, kidnap somebody, and tell the family, if you mention that we took them, you will never see that person again. Otherwise, you may or may not. So the family would remain in silence. Not only that, but some families would be sure that their kids would also not maintain social contact with other kids so as not to mention that. In fact, the, one of the cases that I discussed there is one in which was a family that consulted because a kid that was misbehaving in school, etc., etc. And it was composed by two kids, which were, I believe, nine and six years old. An uncle called Daddy, an aunt called Mommy, and a grandmother. And when they consulted, they couldn't even talk about the disappearance of both parents of these kids. They, in this interview, I would ask them, and what happened with the parents? Oh, we don't know. And this was a clinical situation. So after a while, I would tell them, well, but for all practical purposes, then they may be dead. Oh, no, they are gone, doctor. Say they're adults, no? And they corrected me because it was, I wasn't using the proper word. And say, at a given moment, they say, ma'am, the kids, no. Oh, no, I don't believe so. Oh, yes, they said one of the kids. I, I remember when mama, mama was being taken by this man with machine guns, etc., etc. A story that was ferociously dramatic and intense and extremely interesting. So what was the crisis, if you think of this? The crisis was related to the fact that Daddy, which was the youngest uncle, announced that he was going to get engaged to get me married. And the kid and the boy 
the six-year-old said, but then you, if you have kids, maybe they will, want, will not want for me to call you daddy. And so I created a whole ritual in the course of this session to declare the uncle honorary father. And I gave him in, uh, a, a, a decora decoration or a medal in the air. Of course, the whole thing was a ritual done in the course of the interview that kept everybody transfixed because it was a way of solidifying the real relationship while at the same time demystifying the silence that was keeping these people present and absent. Okay, so you're an analyst. Along come two kids. Their parents have been disappeared. They're being raised by their, quote, aunt and uncle, but who identify them as mm. basically parents. To what end do you, as a doctor, what are you doing? Do you want to clear it up in the kids' minds so that their behavior changes? What is your aim? Alan, you're being very psychoanalytic <laughs> in your question because you are worried about the mind of the person. I'm talking about the collective mind, if you want, that is the rules of the relationship, the guiding principles that were allowing this family to operate. Yeah, that, but to what end? I mean, you're a doctor. Uh, oh, you want to help. Of uh, course. Uh, I'm helping the demystifying. Okay, so you demystify. Uh, yes. Does their behavior break, change? Break the silence. Oh, yes. In fact, the follow-up on this family which is extremely interesting, includes for the first time in two or three years, the kids had a birthday in which they were allowed to invite other kids. Until then, they didn't. They were only having birthdays or any kind of um, commemoration with family alone. The family was socially isolated completely because of this mandate that was continued. And so the kids were allowed to do that. The kids were allowed to go to a kids' club for the first time. They changed the school so the could, kids could go to a school in the neighborhood rather than the school far away where the mommy aunt was living, uh, was working, just to separate home, work, and society. So the kids began to socialize and the adults began to speak about it. So much so that when the regime changed and democracy reappeared a bit at least, the grandmother and then aunt became involved in the Madre de Plaza de Mayo, this kind of movements for the vindication and searching for the information about these people. No? So you're a psychiatrist, you're, yeah. trained in, you're trained in the various diseases of mm -hmm. the mind. So let me ask you this. So... When you get those two children, do you attach to them a diagnosis? I saw the whole family collectively. Right. I never saw the kids alone. Yeah, but still. And, uh, and now, no, I would yeah. not. I would only if the managed care perverse requests for labels would ask me to do that because otherwise they wouldn't reimburse the family for services. Then in that case, I would create some benign label that may fit the general description of the DSM-5. But otherwise, a diagnosis in many cases do not serve more than a classificatory purpose and ultimately the purposes of guiding certain medication track well, yes. tracks. Yes, uh, doctor, I, I think that's right. But so let's say you decide that somebody in the family is what somebody might call borderline, not that no. I even understand what that is. No. But so, so somebody is borderline or somebody is psychotic or somebody is, is this or that, and you have to give them medication. Now, you, you act as a therapist, as an analyst. What about medication? Well, as a therapist, if you have a patient who have the first markers of the possibility of a psychotic break, meaning by that, that something that may lead, if it evolves, to schizophrenia, which is potentially destructive, let's say, for the future of a person, then I would do several things. I would mobilize their social network. I would activate their family. I do psychoeducational issues. I would do therapy. And I would give them a certain, um, a small dosage of antipsychotic medication. 
So I'm educated in the management of medications, but I will do it in context and not as a as a main guideline. So and, for all of these years, Doctor, mm-hmm. you were, for example, between 1983 and 93, the uh, chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the Berkshire Medical Center. Yep. Now, there's short-term psychiatric help and there's longer-term psychiatric mm-hmm. help. I'm going to make a guess that you are a practitioner who believes in getting down to the basics of what's going on, as opposed to somebody who says, look, this person who's just come in is in real trouble. I'm going to give them a couple of pills, and I'm going to tell them to take the pills because that's going to change their behavior. You know, I once had a long talk with a very good friend of mine, long gone now, whose sister had been schizophrenic. And we got into a big fight with somebody who was then practicing at the Riggs Center in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and who said, we only, at the time, do talk therapy here. We don't believe in drugs. And my friend got furious and said, it wasn't until along came the psychotropic drugs or some of the other drugs that my sister could have a conversation with anybody. So is it all chemical or is it, or what? Well, as you well described, a good part of this uh, discussion is an ideological discussion with a facade of uh, scientific discussion in the sense that there are people who have been trained in a biologically oriented assumption and that ultimately medicalize emotions at one end of the spectrum and define as biologically based severe psychiatric problems at the other end of the spectrum. I believe that there are components, genetic components, in many uh, severe psychiatric problems, but that those are perhaps necessary, but for sure not sufficient. And in addition to that, in so many cases, the combination I mean, the combination of treatment, if you want, generates one or other destiny for these patients. And uh, you have two minutes. I'll give you interesting research that has been done by an American researcher, Lyman Wynn, and a team in Finland. Why Finland, if you want, I'll tell you later. In In Finland, after the Second World War, Finland had been allied of the Nazis, passive allied of the Nazis. So after the Second World War... Russia, which went through Finland to end their invasion, the discussion between powers told the Finnish government, either you pay a war restitution of 50% of your gross national product, I'm inventing the figure, or you will become one of our satellite states. They did a referendum. They decided to pay that, which meant that everybody from rich to poor were paying 50-60% of taxes, whatever they were gaining. It was terribly poor for quite a while. During that period, there were a lot of kids given for adoption. Families could not support, sustain their kids. So there was an overabundance of kids given for adoptions. So it was a situation in which they were able to compare the destiny of a large sample of kids who were kids of, call it normal mothers, and with kids of mothers with diagnosis of schizophrenia, simply because ladies who had schizophrenia also were giving kids for adoption. The problem is you can do it in the general population, but with 1% of the population is schizophrenic, so it's very improbable. In this condensed situation, they were able to find like 200 people with women who had babies who were given for adoption that had 10% probability, not one, of schizophrenia, according to the statistics that says if one of your parents has a diagnosis of schizophrenia, your probability is 10 times. With a comparative sample of 200 kids of general population, and they followed them for like 20 years. But not only followed them, they followed their families, and they studied their families' functioning and style. And they classified arbitrarily the families according to, after really deep deep studies with a lot of formal instruments that I don't want to detail, in, if you want, broadly speaking, marvelous families in which everybody is uh, clear and friendly and uh, supportive and reciprocal and uh, clear, etc. Families that are consequence, like my family, and... uh, Families that were abysmal, were either very, very rigid 
or very, very chaotic, which are the two ways in which families deviate in that side of the spectrum. No? And then you compare both samples and all the occurrence of schizophrenia in that study happens in the cell that combines a genetic liability or genetic risk and family that is extremely rigid or extremely chaotic that that indicates that in the other case that is in the normal babies this family didn't produce schizophrenia so it's not the family that produced schizophrenia because the other sample the sample of n sure. normal kids no didn't express schizophrenia they were more difficult kids with families which were very rigid or very chaotic there were a couple of sociopaths and so you're speaking now to the nurture or nature Na phenomenon. nature nature combines yeah okay so somebody walks into your clinic or comes to you as a professional mm -hmm. and they say you know doctor i'm walking around depressed a lot you could do the analytic approach and say okay Who's missing from the picture? Is your mother missing from the picture? Is your father missing from the picture? What was going on? Or you can, as we have seen a lot of, hand somebody a bunch of pills and say, this is going to make your life better just by taking these pills once a day. They do and they are. Let me be crass. It will depend in part with whether the patient is under any kind of managed care that will reimburse pittance, by comparison, for a service, in which case a psychiatrist who follows those patients and uh, mainly operates with that kind of patient will see two, three patients per hour, 20 minutes, or a general practitioner even more, every 10, 15 minutes. Uh, Sure. In the old days, it was an hour or 50 mm -hmm. minutes. You got your time. And psychiatry was listed at the very bottom, along with pediatricians, of doctor reimbursement, doctor Correct. pay. Now, things have changed because doctors can, as you just said, take 15 minutes and give a pill. Or they can do, as I do and so many others do, not take any managed care. Not take it means by that I take a patient the patient pays me my fees, which is higher than managed care. Just for the sake of clarity. Okay. I know you're I not going to want. I know you're not going to want to do this, no? but just for the sake okay. of clarity, so everybody understands what we're talking yeah. about here. How much for an hour with you? How much do I charge as compared to how much managed care pays? Yes. Well, managed care would pay sixty-five dollars per contact. And usually and they wait. would set a time. Not only that, but you have to for each contact a specific report and so you have to spend time in electronic medical records or if you are lucky in massachusetts not yet necessarily uh, at least only partially um, non-electronic medical records which is an enormous expenditure of time many people write while they are talking with the patient I don't know if you had that kind of doctor. My general practitioner. Yeah, other yeah, people yeah, right? yeah. They talk while they write. But what I'm saying is and that... You never got to tell me how much your fee was. I'm reaching there. I'm reaching there. Okay. And then, on the other hand, I will charge, depending on the patient's ability, between 150 and 250. And that's the difference. So that has... To, of which, yeah. managed care may pay 100, 110, 120, 80, depending on the... Yeah, on yeah, the but doctor, I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I'm just trying to yeah. understand this. You were the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the Berkshire Medical Center. Oh, we no, know I'm, there was a large range of economic oh, oh, distress. No. But yeah, that's a different context. No, no, no. It's a different it's a, context. It's a different context. When I was chair of the Department of Psychiatry, I would see across the board any kind no, of gotcha. patient... No, I understand ...with that. any kind of insurance, and I wouldn't charge if they didn't have any... No, because I was paid I, by the hospital in addition. I, I, I understand that. However, here we are. As you know, I did my doctorate in the politics of mental health, actually. Mm, sure. I wrote a lot on this, but there's the question of the economics, Rashifine and the rest of them, the amount of access that somebody without resources has. You're the best of the best. We know that. And when I first met you, people were whispering in my ear, this guy is one of the most important people that we have around here in this field. But if I don't have the $200 or whatever, and I'm poor in this country, I'm not talking about you now. In this I'm context. I'm talking mm -hmm. about at large, mm -hmm. the people who have the most will be treated better. That is correct. That is correct. In 
my whole professional life, I worked, for instance, in Argentina. Let me start sure. with my first uh, 10 years. You went to medical school and you were trained in Argentina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Except in family therapy, in which I was trained in, uh, States. in Palo Alto, California. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, we would, in the morning, we would work in the hospitals for free. And in the afternoon, we would work in our private practice. And for free, it's for free for the patient and for free for us. That was a system. So we, we dedicated, I dedicated per day, four, four hours. Of I am not calling sure. into question your professional morality. No, I am, no. I am only saying... I'm saying, if while I was chair of the Department of Psychiatry here at Berkshire Medical Center and then after the one in Santa Barbara in California, I would see when requested any kind of patients, paid or not paid. In my practice currently, which is a restricted by a practice, I choose to operate in this mode simply because otherwise I cannot support myself. I cannot support the practice. So I do supervisions for free. I do consultations as a faculty. I'm a clinical professor, but that doesn't mean that I'm paid. Clinical means voluntary. Yeah, yeah. And so I do supervision of residents in clinical practice. Uh, I go behind the window mirror, observing them, interacting with couples and families, and do all these kind of activities in teaching, and that is pro bono. No, that I, is my pro bono no, part no, no, in life. No, 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 I get that. I get that. But here's my, here's my issue, and that is a guy comes to you or a woman comes to you and says, doctor, doctor, I'm a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. Now, you could do long-term psychotherapy, assuming they, their parents were really rich or they were really rich and they could give you $200 an hour. But we have treatment modalities now, do we not, that will allow you to say, okay, take this medicine and come back. There's a long distance between those two practice types, right? Absolutely. But everybody's got to get treated somehow. Mm -hmm. The person has identified that they don't want to be on heroin anymore. Mm -hmm. So they come to you. Do you give them the pills? First of all, I I probably wouldn't take it because I don't do addictions. That is, I don't work on addictions currently for the last 20 years, let's say. So I'm not totally updated with the newest things. But uh, leaving aside that reality, if that would be the case, I would tell them, I cannot treat you. I will refer you to this, this, this. Hmm? You'd refer him to Jennifer Michaels, who is an addiction specialist at Berkshire Medical. You might. I may, or I may may send them to the different public sector components. Yeah. And uh, which are saying, well, they are not the best. Well, they they are the the best that service that the system can afford. And I don't want to compare them with me. They may be, for sure, they are better than me with addictions. I started by asking you, doctor, about Freud. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much does Freud count in your practice? Well, I believe that the music of Freud counts much more than the lyrics. I don't talk Explain. Freud as much, uh, but I had a lot of training, and so Freud speaks to me, or hums to me in different moments, <laughs> a worldview that includes some topographic reality in the sense of people who do things without, uh, because of mandates that they have to do, and they sneak out. And there are many of the biblical stories you can translate into uh, psychoanalytic terms. But Freud talked about things like character being basic to individuals and things of that kind. Um, So so is that important? Yeah, but that's Freud for dummies. Yeah, no. Freud 101. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Yeah. Well, so. but you here you are on a public radio station, and yeah. we're relative dummies. So, yeah. so that's why I'm trying to get down to basics. Oh, no, here. yes. Yeah. Nothing personal. No, not at all, and I deserve it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's so interesting because people who are listening to this program are going to be asking themselves, okay, here's an incredibly distinguished doctor. He's a writer, he's an author, he's well thought of in his profession, he speaks at a level we don't speak at. So how do I get a piece of him as opposed to going to a social worker who lives around the corner who's going to tell me, don't scratch? Well, no, I definitely wouldn't describe that as what a social worker does. They are extremely, in fact, my first teacher in the field of family therapy was a social worker, Virginia Satir, in uh, prehistory, you know? and they are extremely competent 
professionals at different levels. So it's, I don't want to say I'm better than them. I'm not. I simply have a lot yeah. of experience in mainly sort of, a, if you want, cross-culturally based, socially oriented, uh, interpersonal processes, which Fair is enough. But do you ever family. Say, do you ever see a patient and say, it's so clear that this person is doing something that is harmful to themselves? Yes. Do you ever say... Cut it out. Oh, Don't yeah. do that. Oh yes, absolutely. I'm. So you're not I'm, one at of my those... age. I'm okay. free. <laughs> yeah. So you're not one of those guys who <laughs> refuses uh, to, uh, you know, to take a position in a uh, therapeutic. Absolutely manner. not. Absolutely not. And uh, so if. Uh, some people would be peeking at me from behind a, uh, another, another one-way mirror. One-way mirror. They would say that I am reasonably heterodox, heterodox in the sense of non-orthodox in my approaches. But they would say at the same time that I'm empathic, that I'm ethic, and that I am positive. Um, <laughs> I was looking over the material yeah. that that I got about yeah. you, and there was something about a Belgian Arab involvement, and oh, I know it's one of your case. <laughs> Studies. What was that? Oh, that was another extremely interesting situation. Of this was a consultation, a one-time consultation. I did. I do workshops all over the world, literally. I know that. So this was one in an industrial city in in Belgium, where I was asked by other therapists to see, and it was piped through uh, closed-circuit television to about 200 people who were in an audience watching this, with permission, everything, etc. A family of uh, Moroccan who had moved a number of years ago from Morocco to Belgium. And father was working in a factory. And the problem was that the kid, the oldest kid, which was 14 years old or 15 years old, uh, appeared one day black and blue in the, in the public high school and uh, the t the teachers ask what's going on oh my father beat me immediately they called social services yeah. the kid was taken out uh, put into a um, uh, adolescence refuge or something and they called the parents and made a big fuss and they told them unless you you won't be able to, be able to see your kids unless you do some family interventions uh, family therapy to see about this family violence blah, blah, blah. and these people did that they saw a couple of uh, the Belgian therapists uh, who were trying to tell them what to do. No? And the father was saying, yes, 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 but he was doing, no, 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 he wasn't doing anything. So they were very frustrated, and so they asked me to see them. So I, saw, I told them, bring the whole, whole family. It was marvelous. The whole family was a family of 13, with 13 kids. Fortunately, only nine came to the session, together with mother and father. Father, clear French speaking. Mother, few words, Arab speak, speaking in Arabic with uh, in Moroccan, whatever, Moroccan Arabic with um, uh, with the father. Muslims. Uh, she was dressed uh, from head uh, covered from head to toe, and all the kids. The situation was. Uh, it took me about 15 minutes to realize this situation in which this kid, the father was expecting that the kid would do what he himself was doing, named, had done, namely being the oldest, I am in charge of the family when the kids are, when my parents are not here. So I take care of all the kids. I come from school and stay home taking care of all the kids uh, and tyrannizing that. No? And... That was being a good child. And uh, being a good child? Good, so a good child, yeah. yes. And uh, in turn, the kid, the, the, his older kid, was being socialized in the Belgian system. So after school, kids stay there to play soccer yeah. or to play or to this and to go to the movies or to something. And for several years, the kid was having to leave house, leave the school and go ha home to be again taking care of uh, the Constant children, yeah. children producing machine that was that was that couple, and um, until he rebelled and told the father, "I don't want to do this," and the father beat the boom out of him, um, and um, 
there is a simple way which would say tell this uh, father it is not done tell the father not to be a jerk yeah no sorry wrong country wrong country there it is done here it is not done no you, you say that and the father will say yes but this country is wrong <laughs> this country is wrong that's the way you do things but the whole discussion was ended up being a discussion a metaphoric discussion related to dreams the kids were having were having nightmares and the nightmares were invading uh, their house for instance this kid since he had these nightmares was changed bad said father okay what nightmares and asked, I asked the kid and the kid said well it was first of all myself and several others saw the the dog in the house and this is a dream the dream the reality as, as, as a footnote in in any muslim con uh, household cats are welcome but dogs are not you cannot have a dog in the house because if you have a dog you cannot have angels in so the, the house. fact that the kid was reporting that the dog was in the house the was a social taboo thing. Uh, was a social taboo, but in addition to that, was an, a metaphor of the, the uh, uh, entrance of the alien, re risky things. And the girls also, several girls, saw uh, saw the um, saw horse, saw uh, uh, dogs afterwards. But he also saw a sort of a med medusa that was uh, uh, entering and challenging, and uh, the challenging him and he that kind of nightmare. So I I started saying it's so good that you have this kind of dreams because uh, to have a dream is to have a, a powerful way of connecting with with uh, the magic world and. Who is the second best after second one? Who who else saw horse uh, dogs? Oh, I did, I did, I did. Said several of the kids. I saw, said the father. I saw a wolf when I was uh, young in my in my country, and I protected my brothers and sisters. But true, true wolf? No, no, it was a dream. Ah, dreams. And so I kept on talking about dreams and ways of uh, differentiating the dreams um, of with uh, as clear, important assets. Now, Dr. Mm. Uh, Slutsky, yeah. um, yeah. you know and I know that this is very important to some of your colleagues mm. who study this stuff. Um, but I want to know, mm. once you were consulting on this and you talked to... Mm. 13 kids, the two parents, mm. you've heard about the dogs, <laughs> you heard about the wolf. To what end? To what end? Okay. To the following. <laughs> yeah. To, to the end of uh, creating a shift in that family's processes so as for the father to recognize that the kid has the right to have his own wishes and he's the, uh, of being a child. Because at the very end of the session, the father started recognizing that it was difficult. It had been difficult for him, himself, to uh, have to follow all these rules. And he understands that the kids wants that. It's bad, but it's understandable. The two therapists were there, the Belgian therapist, who established afterwards following me, let's say, following, imitating me, a different rapport with this family that instead of being instructive was empathic and at the same time acknowledging both the, the trap and the difficulties and pains of shifting uh, cultures and what you leave behind and what you bring with you when you go from one culture to the next. So much so that my follow-up with that is uh, a exchange of letters with the therapists about what things were done differently and how things how things evolved. And in fact, this specific family, the things evolved in a change in the relation, the family climate overall, 
the one recurrence of a beating, but then no more. Uh, then parents uh, incorporate, reincorporating to the, this child, dividing the leadership of the kids instead of putting it in the oldest, dividing it between the two or three oldest so that it would re reduce the pressure. And so it was a respectful shift, uh, uh, adaptation to the culture. I want to stop for a moment yeah. and, and remind everybody that we're in conversation today with Dr. Carlos Slutsky, clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral science at George Washington University School of Medicine, professor emeritus of global and community health and conflict analysis and resolution at George Mason University, and author of The Presence of the Absent, Therapy with Families and Their Ghosts, and that's available on Amazon. So, Professor Slutsky, Dr. Slutsky, you are, of course, a psychiatrist, but it's interesting that your title includes in conflict analysis. Psychiatrists treat individuals. Are you treating a society like Freud, civilization, <laughs> and its discontents, or are you treating patients? Well, I, I do several things. I've, I worked in uh, human rights-related uh, activities, well, I did it since I was a medical student uh, in different ways, but uh, when I was a medical student, I led a small underground organization helping political prisoners in Argentina. But then I worked in uh, as a consultant for the International Criminal Court, uh, for the Office of the Prosecutor of the International what Criminal Court. What did you do Court. for them? Well, I worked to reduce, way, uh, find ways of reducing the secondary trauma, if you want, trauma by empathy, the, the, the fact that their own interviewers ended up interviewing people who are horribly traumatized in Congo, for instance, and uh, they would come and the organization itself didn't support them at their return, and they ended up stuck with not only the horror of what they have seen, but the sense that they were trying to help these poor women raped by 20 marauding soldiers, and they come bring the report to the office of the prosecutor, and the office of the prosecutor says, oh, thank you very much, we'll see whether this is a crime or a crime against humanity, and we'll decide in six months, <laughs> which is uh, the, the, the mission of the International Criminal Court. But on the other hand, from the individual viewpoint of the interviewers, it was a way of betraying their own poor, the people that they were. What did, so what did you tell them? Well, uh, what I, I recommended is that they would have a, a, a way of receiving the interviewers after a mission in a way that would be not only empathic, empathic in the sense of acknowledging all their own sufferings and pains, but making transparent the process within the court. So it's not that they, they, they wouldn't have the sense that they bring the report and nothing happens, but they understand what is the process of uh, evolution of their own interview as part of the decis final decision, so they feel part of the group organization rather than just an agent. No, that's kind of things. Dr. Slutsky, I guess I got to ask this because the problem here is that we may be talking on two different levels. Mm -hmm. Level one is, you know, my fairly simplistic idea about the way things work or should work. And yours is, is a heavily refined, analytic look at the way in which we human beings relate to each other, and you are at a level which some people can't understand. They can't understand it because your your level of thinking is too high for what we mortals, you know, think about things. Now here you are, distinguished chair, psychiatrist, internationally known. Is it incumbent on you to make that happen so that people understand what the hell you're doing? Well, first of all, this, this book, if yes. you ever have the opportunity to read it, 
You can read in a weekend. It is very uh, accessible. Okay. Uh, sure. I, I don't go into complex theories, but just try to be pragmatic in whatever I describe and uh, distill from that some words of wisdom if, the, if, if needed. And in my practice, are, I'm the same. That is, uh, I have a practice right now. I just opened a practice in, in, in Stockbridge and uh, doing it without any expectation or assumptions that I'm going to talk difficult. Each of us carry with us uh, our universe that is subtle, is complex, and uh, can be uh, not only understood, but in many cases shifted in ways that makes our life more user-friendly and our reality more user-friendly. Well, you have to practice on several levels. I mean, you have to practice yeah. with the individual. You also have to mm -hmm. practice for the intellectual and psychiatric community mm -hmm. that exists in the world, yeah. not only oh, around yeah. here, Dr. Slutsky. And, yeah. and uh, let me ask you a question. You're Jewish, right? Yeah. Does that matter in terms of your practice? Well, I, I'm Jewish from Argentina, which is a very peculiar Different place. Different than Jewish in America. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, great. Well, yes, among other things, uh, most of the Jewish people I know in Argentina were progressive, what do you call more rediaper Jews, no? that is, Jews that were progressive and uh, non-religious. Sure. And for in a, in a being in a, coming from a country that was had a lot of anti-Semitic uh, background. You bet, yeah. Uh, it was more an inconvenient than an advantage to be Jews in Argentina, I would say, up to a point. Huh? But, uh, but how that, about being a Jewish psychiatrist? Uh, that's caricature. No? Psychiatrists are physicians, generally Jews, who don't like blood. <laughs> but in fact, there is some Talmudic reality in our practice. Talmudic meaning back and forth. <laughs> uh, meaning, meaning, yeah, conversational yeah. issues that leads from practice to philosophy and from philosophy to practice and ultimately accompany people sometimes in splitting hairs, but quite frequently when you split a hair you find contradictory uh, injunctions that create problems. So I wanted to ask you about your language. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're fluent in Spanish. And how does that work in psychiatric practice, the fact that you can speak another language extremely well? Needless to say, it's an advantage for in my practice and in many cases for the patients also. They are from the fact that I can access patients in Spanish and Italian, reasonably in French and for sure in, uh, in English. But in many cases, individuals may have childhood in w one country, in Spanish-speaking country, and adulthood in an English-speaking country. But the original and culture is terribly important. So but if you're... That, but the language yeah. is associated to certain kind of experiences. Sure. So they can shift language when they shift their realities. Sure. Mm -hmm. So if somebody walks into your office and they're Puerto Rican, mm -hmm. as opposed to Argentinian, yeah. there might be a huge difference in the culture that led them to their character development and who they are. However, and I know it for not only in practice, but also in uh, daily life, speaking in Spanish to a person who in this country is labeled a minority and they, sp they are <laughs> belong to different language, speaking Spanish to them generally is so welcome is ah transforms suddenly the conversation from an, a conversation with a distant alien person into a familiar. So is there any reason not to, doctor, to speak Spanish with them? For example, their dissonance may come from the fact that they're a Spanish-speaking person in an English culture, but if you're speaking Spanish and you relieve them, does that create a problem in terms of knowing what the real problems are? Well, no. It may happen that some people may not want to speak Spanish, for instance, because they graduated to English. And the graduation to English is a distinction, is, is an asset. And they otherwise def define their Spanish self as second grade. Uh, oh, that's interesting. You know, in which case, I can choose very strategically, so to speak, Spanish or English, depending on who am I talking to of their two selves. But the, you know? but the Spanish is the language, in most cases, of the parents. So therefore, you know, and new psychiatry so heavily relies on interpersonal relationships, oh. parental relationships. Oh, yeah. But of course, they are their parents, and therefore, maybe of the many injunctions 
may appear in the language of the parents. You know? My father was Austrian, and so some of my... And your father fled from the Nazis? He No, he left, uh, before. He left Vienna before. My grandparents and uncles, yes, fled from the Nazis at the very last minute. Uh, yeah. But my father was an architect, and he came to Argentina in the 20s. And you left, we only have a couple of seconds left, but you left Argentina to come to the States because? Not because, uh, literally, in the sense that uh, it was before the military uh, junta. But it was already in a period in which the killings had started and the the political options were uh, reasonably dismal. But I came with Guggenheim, so it's not that I escaped Argentina. I was brought with a sort of a golden tray. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. But well, we're very lucky to have you. I'm, uh, you. I'm fascinated by everything I've learned today. We've been in conversation today with Dr. Carlos Slusky, clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at George Washington University School of Medicine, Professor Emeritus of Global and Community Health and Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University, and author of The Presence of the Absent, Therapy with Families and Their Ghosts. And you can get that at Amazon.com. Dr. Slusky, it's a good thing I ran into you. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you very much, Alan. A pleasure. listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.